0: What is up? Thanks for listening to Workstaff. This episode, I'm catching up with someone I haven't connected with in a long time, actually. Matthew Snyder is currently the president and co-founder of Block 3 Strategy Group. It's a consulting firm that provides advice to businesses on investing in blockchain and Web3 technology in general. He also wrote a book recently, Warren Buffett in a Web3 World, Applying 60 Years of Sage Advice to Cryptocurrency, NFTs, Blockchains, and More. Uh, He gave me a copy, actually, and I haven't read it yet, but excited to read it. And I'll be sure to add a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. He's also a VP of strategy and business development for Sentry Tech, which is a company that works with owners and developers of affordable housing to equip low-income housing with uh, more modern technologies. So like broadband, infrastructure, IoT, You know, bring technology into these places that don't normally have uh, the latest and greatest and at an affordable cost. Before all that, I knew Matt as a camp counselor like a couple other guests I've had. He was someone I definitely looked up to since I was just entering high school and he was just starting college at the time we met. One of the most interesting jobs Matt took early on was to teach English to kids in China. And he shares why he made that crazy big decision at 22. He got his MBA from Loyola Marymount University, which is here in LA. And with that experience, he worked for big name firms like KPMG and Slalom Consulting. Lots of interesting stops along the way during Matthew's career. Really awesome to uh, have him explain all that and kind of go through what he was thinking. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you all enjoy.
1: Welcome to Word Stuff. Can you see my screen? No, I don't think so, cause it's just for listening. I'm the guy who brings up work stuff at parties. My name is Andy, and I want you to join me. Word stuff. A podcast. Word stuff. Professional stories
0: casually told. Matt, what's going on, man?
2: Good to see you, dude. You ready for some chance? <laughs> some, so, some camp chance?
0: <laughs> yes, please. Um, you'd be surprised. I still got some of those stuck in my head.
2: Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> I was just thinking about them on the way here. How's it going, <laughs> man? It's awesome.
0: It's going really good. It's good to see you. I appreciate you joining me on my podcast. Um, you want to describe a bit, do a little intro for yourself and describe what you're doing now?
2: sure. Sure. Um, again, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we were able to make this work and appreciate uh, you know just the, the sentiment that you have of getting to know people and, and their, their careers. Uh, my name is Matthew Snyder. I currently have two jobs. One focuses specifically on um, working with broadband deployments in affordable housing. So one of the things that we work as a startup to do is essentially make sure that people who are unconnected have the ability to get high speed internet access. Uh, we also uh, are working to build a software platform for them in affordable housing, student housing to basically it's, it's a residential services platform. So we bring educational tools to them, workforce development tools, health literacy, financial literacy, all those kinds of things. Um, and then we we put it out into the building and and let people work with it. We're also cool. trying to pipe in pipe in some cool AI stuff, too, to, to let people kind of get access to that, because a lot of times technology flows from really, really wealthy and fortunate to, you know, typically poorer or underserved individuals sooner. Sure. So we, we wanted to put that, um, you know, as best we could into that platform. Um, and then my other job is a am a registered investment advisor for a company that I founded called Block 3 Strategy Group. And what we do is work with businesses, brands, and entrepreneurs to help them strategically find new ways to generate revenues or new user experiences with blockchain technology cryptocurrencies web 3 sort of stuff and in that capacity we are also working to raise a 10 million dollar fund so cool. we're gonna uh, we're gonna we've got 10% like allocated already so we've got a little bit of our own skin in the game but now we're getting all the pieces together to go out and um, try to try to shop around and get some people involved as well
0: that's very cool. Yeah. And yeah. I was looking at your at your website and I noticed that um, it seems like education is a big piece of that because blockchain Web3 is so so new. Yeah. And so I'm sure that there are a lot of companies that are have no idea what that even refers to and that there's like opportunity on the table there. Um, it's very cool.
2: Yeah. And it's been really great in the past couple of years, especially now that NFTs have kind of come into the play, non-fungible tokens, because content creators, people who have small businesses, artists are trying to figure out ways that they can monetize their work in a different way and own it in a different way to continue getting sort of perpetual royalties on anything they create. So they're using this technology in a new way uh, that we haven't really seen before. So it's crazy to see all the different use cases, you know, I've got a coffee shop, I want to do memberships, I've got a winery, I want to sell wine to people or I've got art, it's crazy, but it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and hmm. from, from the investor perspective, too, that's also one of the things we try to differentiate ourselves on because as part of the fund, we're actually going to say, hey, look, let's educate you about this too. We're not going to do this in a vacuum and keep you in the dark. We want to help you understand what you're investing mm-hmm. in and, and, and how to think about it differently. So we've kind of hit on that as like an interesting added value to being part of our fund as well. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that's uh, probably a, hu- a huge piece is like, I'm not going to you know, invest in something I don't even fully understand. But uh, at the same time, I'm sure some some companies probably feel some FOMO a little bit
2: and uh, and you can capitalize on that too. Yeah, and Very and I cool. think too a lot of people have have a bunch of cash on the side too. Like mm. cash has been something that we've been seeing where people don't know where to do, where where to put it, and mm-hmm. interest rates are high, so you can put cash to work pretty easily. But you know, even small amounts here and there and alternative assets is a, is really the thing we try to sell. It's okay to dip your toes in there a little bit. Uh, right. Get 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 exposure to something that's a little bit more volatile.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, you got to diversify the portfolio yeah. a bit, huh? Exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. cool. Yeah. Well, let, I would love to get into that, especially, um, what you mentioned about like your experience with century tech, um, mm-hmm. with the affordable housing and then getting technology in there. It's really cool. Um, but let's rewind a bit back to how we first met. Um, you know, I'll, I'll add this in the intro, but, um, you know, we went to the same high school, just not at the same time. And mm-hmm. we worked at a, at a day camp together, which I always thought was like, um, really valuable experience, um, uh, mm-hmm. to kind of like be put out there as an adolescent and, mm-hmm. um, you know, learn how to kind of like work off the cuff and, and work with people in an uncomfortable environment, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, So that that's how we know each other as camp counselors. And we actually worked uh, closely together. I always looked up to you a bit because, uh, you know, you were, you were entering college while I was entering high school. And so you kind of knew mm-hmm. everything I was trying to learn, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, But do you want to describe a bit about like how that experience as a camp counselor um, kind of shaped your career, if, if it did at all?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the one of the things I'll always remember about that was the day that we had to interview for the job, hmm. right? And, and they took us into this room and they, they brought us with a bunch of the other counselors and they said, okay, entertain us. <laughs> That's basically all they said. Right. And it, it really helped me realize because at Shaman, when I was in high school, I, I always enjoyed like the, the drama aspect. Like I wasn't a big sports person. My mom was always saying like, you gotta do sports. That's how you're gonna get into college, hmm. et cetera, et cetera totally fine i think that that's a pretty applicable thing like now and again but i always had a soft spot for drama i've always been kind of a hollywood kid and so the improv nature the sort of on stage nature of being in front of these kids who didn't really like care what you were doing as long as you could be entertaining was a really fun way to spend time and it was really yeah. cool to like engage with other people get to know other uh, people outside of my school cuz i didn't live in a place where i could walk down the street and meet a bunch of friends So that was a place where we would all kind of hang out and be together. And it was this really cool family. And definitely to your point, makes it possible for you to engage with people on a whole spectrum of age. So we had people who were directors who had been promoted, right? There was a lot of upward mobility in that job too, which was really interesting to see. Like we were there, I was there for three years. So started as a counselor and then kind of moved into the specialist role a little bit, which I thought was really cool. But we, we saw other peers, Um, get promoted, do other cool things, get more responsibility. And to this day, it was like my very first paycheck. I remember like, Oh, here's 500 bucks or whatever it was you got for like two weeks. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to think that that was the start of it all. And then you, from there you realize, okay, now I have to go to college and do internships and these kinds of things. It wasn't the driving force on a resume necessarily that you Mm -hmm. were a counselor, but people liked that, you know, you could be around kids and I guess you kept them all alive.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, that's a pretty easy to, easy success metric, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. 100% return rate on on kids at the end of the day. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, they
2: didn't have to fill out like surveys. (laughs) Yeah, right, yeah.
0: Well, not yet. Maybe like in the future, you got like kids with their phones, like, yeah, reviewing their counselors and Rating you, yeah, Yeah, exactly. That'd be funny.
2: It also Um, helps that I'm just a giant kid anyways, so uh, it's pretty easy to do.
0: Yeah, you could tell, um, like what, what, which people it kind of came naturally to, because like if you're yeah. just naturally goofy and like okay with yourself, um, uh, yeah. you know, wearing princess dresses if if you need to, um, you know, like no, no, no shame in that.
2: No, That's absolutely
0: not. Very cool. Well, uh, dude, one of the really interesting aspects of your career that I still remember, and I still I think about this every now and then about your teaching in China and teaching English, mm-hmm. which was like it blew my mind when I, when I like learned that you were doing that way back then. Cause I was just like, man, that's such a bold move to make and it's like scary and kind of surprising that like um, that kind of program even exists. Like China would invest in this program to bring fluent English speakers um, mm-hmm. to just like, 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 I, I don't know if you like knew Chinese at all. and could even communicate in, in Chinese, but I, I just thought that was like such a powerful um, initiative to bring e- English speaking, you know, uh, high school or college students to just ingrain their students into English. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to describe like what prompted that, that like the the intrigue to, to do that, what you were looking to accomplish? And I guess where, where was your head at, at at that point in your in your life?
2: Yeah, uh, so I, I went to Boston University for undergrad, and I had spent probably the first two years like many undergrads do trying to figure out what they're going to major in. And I had gone from like biology to maybe biomedical engineering. And it was just a ton of like way too much science. And it was just not something that I thought was very interesting. But I was also taking Japanese at the time. So I'd taken two years of Japanese. And I was like, mom, I, th- I think I want to major in Japanese. And she said, I'm not paying this much money for you to major in a language. No shame to people who do that. That's their journey. That's totally fine. But she said, I want you to like find something that's like meaningful and that you, you would be really interested in. And so I came across economics and realized that like, oh yeah, okay, this is how businesses work. And this is how money goes. And like this various social science around um, behavioral economics is actually a, a big passion of mine. Like why people do stupid stuff hmm. uh, or, or how we're illogical or how we don't do rational things. I find fascinating. So I started taking econ my junior year and I didn't take a language. And then after realizing kind of in, this is 2007, 2006, I was like, wow, China is just a powerhouse. Like, wouldn't it be really cool to learn about this language? And I always had a knack for languages. At Chaminade, you can only mm-hmm. get Spanish or French, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, in California, Los Angeles, Spanish is always kind of the the go-to for for students. And so I thought, well, let me try a new language. This would be fun. And so I started Chinese my senior year and by the end of it, I had a final where we had to memorize over like a thousand characters and be able to like read, write and do all this stuff. But a couple of months before that, they said, hey, we have this opportunity for people once they graduate to go teach abroad in China in a place called Dalian, which is about an hour east of Beijing by plane. Um, so that was a really good opportunity. The real catalyst for it, however, was the financial crisis. <laughs> so... People, I graduated in 2009. There was not a job for somebody who was 22 that was going to be meaningful, right? Like you've got to have some brand recognition or you got to do something that's like a powerful internship. And so my mom, I I was actually dating somebody at the time and I didn't think I was going to go. I was like, I'm not going to do this. And my mom's like, that's the dumbest thing. Like you just go do something, go have an adventure. You're 22. Like it's going to be fine. It's, it's going to be like 10 months, but it's, it's going to be totally worth it. And wow. so much to her credit because people like you have heard about it and they thought, wow, that's a really cool experience or it's followed me wherever I've been. And people have said, oh, that's so cool. or That's a great experience. Mm-hmm. And so that was really kind of the reason why I decided to do it. And so I was fortunate enough. I was one of the only people that knew Chinese when they came over. So there wow. was a bunch of us there. None of them knew Chinese. Uh, so that was even, even scarier, I guess, in some, in some sense. Uh, but yeah, so that's how I ended up there, and um, it was it was an incredible opportunity. We traveled all over the place, and we wow. taught. Oh, I think I taught over two thousand kids, um, grades four through twelve. Cool. Um, yeah, just very cool. like all different varieties and types: high school, middle school, a um, lot of a lot of crazy, goofy student stories and stuff. But it was <laughs> it was a great time for sure.
0: That's so interesting. It really takes guts. I mean. Um not only to study abroad or to, you know, take a job abroad, but also, you know, in an Asian country, it's, it's, it really is like, like, you know, London's one thing, but mm-hmm. Beijing is, is a whole nother uh, level, I think, of uncomfortability. So that's really impressive. You mentioned that you taught students from so many different age ranges in 10 months, like, how is it structured? So like, do you just hold like one big English class and like cycle in new age groups, like, um, you know, over the, over the day or the week or whatever? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so we were basically uh, kind of a consultant. So we were considered a secondary teacher, whereas they had their yeah. primary English teachers who would grade them, who would test them, who would do all that stuff. The first semester that I was there, I was working directly at a high school. So it was all 9, 10, 11, and 12th grade. Mm. And I would have different periods, just like you'd have any substitute teacher, any teacher. And I would have, you know, spend a full day at this one uh, campus and then maybe go to the other campus and teach some some other ones. Um, and so that first semester, that was really interesting because I had to do some tests with the kids and they thought I was like a substitute teacher. So they always had their phone out. They're always trying to like Mm -hmm. talk to each other and stuff. Um, but it was, it was really cool to see them progress because they knew English like really well. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but my job was really to speak more so they would understand naturally how people spoke. So we watched a lot of movies. We watched a lot of music videos. I showed them pictures of my travels and stuff, but mm-hmm. it was really just to talk and have a dialogue about these things. It was the only way I could kind of have an activity. And to the counseling point about like camp counselor, you couldn't have as much fun with them because it was like a structured school scenario, right? So you kind of had to get creative about ways that you could, you could engage with them. And then the second semester in the, in I think late January, so I was there from September to May, June, um, that was the more middle school. So that was like four, five, six, seven, eighth graders. Um, and that was there was one day when I came in and this probably probably seventh grader just stood up and said, Teacher, go home. No <laughs> I way. Like, I was like, okay. So, so I like left and then played blackjack on my Blackberry outside. <laughs> it's just like they just <laughs> they would just tell me random stuff or they would ask random questions. And uh they were so nice though. Just the kids were so cool and they always wanted to like hang out, which was not okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the teacher give me your number, teacher give me your number. Right. Uh so that was always just a, a riot. That's so funny. Well I'm sure like you know
0: blue blue-eyed Matt, you know, yeah. was definitely an anomaly to them. Yeah. Um I'm sure that was yeah. fun. Very yeah. cool and I imagine like um you were basically just speaking English like normally and and it was up to them to like adapt and like learn about that and be immersed in it. Um and that was the whole strategy behind it.
2: Yeah, and it was it was a challenge too because you know, the reverse is also true. Speaking English is not an easy language. And yeah, so a lot of times they would be a little scared or worried about how they're pronouncing things or how things are coming across. And you really have yeah. to be uh, empathetic to the fact that like, as long as you're trying, I'm sure I sounded like, uh, like ridiculous when I was trying to pronounce Chinese uh, the, mm-hmm. very, the very first time. And so I think really just talking with them and and having conversations was the most fun that I could do. It's kind of like an ask me anything, right? Like Mm. you'd come in you say, what do you want to know about today? Teacher, tell us about your vacations. You're like, okay, let's let's talk about these kinds of things. And um, it was, it was very fulfilling. It was very cool. Wow.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Definitely unique. I'm sure Um, it comes up, at least especially when you were, you know, I guess going from that position that that was like uh, a huge story that you were telling in interviews, looking for, for new roles. Um, so the next spot that I see on your on your career was this uh, chief of staff role at technet um, How did you find this this role it's a it's, it's a nice it's an awesome title to to grab you know I mean um it, it sounds like uh, a tough one uh, to do and I, I guess was that around I guess after you got an MBA
2: with LMU? no, so that was before i had I had come back from China and it was kind of like i I worked uh, my mom lived in Rockport, Massachusetts. So the, the summer before I left China, I worked at a restaurant there. It's like a bartender waiter. Yeah. And then I went to China, came back and spent the summer with her and did the same kind of thing. But during that summer, she sent me to Washington DC, where we had, um, her cousin, uh, worked for a big PR firm there. Yeah. And he basically knew a bunch of people. I went there for four days and he shot me around to a bunch of different, a uh, bunch of different folks. Uh, different job opportunities, different places like that. And of course, just to your point, I had to keep saying, I just came back from China. I'm like, I'm a God's gift to like your company. It's going to be great. (laughs) Um, And lo and behold, like one of the last ones I I interviewed with was a company called TechNet. It's a, it's a lobbying company. So it's a technology Mm -hmm. lobbying association. They have probably a hundred or 150 different technology clients that pay them a bunch of money for them to Mm -hmm. go on the Hill, talk to Congress people, senators, kind of get the scuttlebutt of what's going on in DC. From the tech side, it's very interesting, but it's lobbying is not so great when you go into like the tobacco and the firearms and like the stuff that like has a lot of controversial oil, you know, whatever. So I I thought this was kind of a cool spot. And um, I ended up working as the, I got an internship there to start. and, And I worked under Ray Ramsey, who's oddly enough, my boss now. No so way. this, yeah. So this was a person wow. who was just an incredible impact and mentor on my life. Mm-hmm. And I spent about two years there with him. They, it was my first salaried position. So after a few like intern weeks, they're like, okay, bring him on. Totally fine. And then the, the actual chief of staff. So I was like the executive assistant and then the actual chief of staff left. And then I took over his role as a chief of staff. The company was maybe 12 people, 15 mm-hmm. people. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't uh, being a chief of a big right, staff. Right. Um, but spending time with Ray was just an incredible opportunity. He's a, a very eloquent speaker, storyteller. So all my, uh, like, you know, the acting thing was really good. The drama stuff was really good, but having somebody who knew how to speak professionally and carry an audience and get people to come along with them was really, really powerful. And everything else administratively was just an incredible way to like learn a bunch of stuff about also managing people, helping to understand how process works in the business um, and then networking, just getting to know a bunch of people. Um, I probably never had more fun than when I was living in DC. I ended up joining a kickball league uh, and made just a ton of friends. And every it's such a small city, like you can get mm-hmm. anywhere really easily. Um, and it was just very powerful. The, the moral of that story is that I really don't like lobbying. But, but you uh, get the opportunity to uh, see Washington DC and just, it's weird how you take for granted all these giant monuments that are there, you drive them by them all the time. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it was cool. It was a very interesting experience. Um, just at, like very good admin, very good operations and very good sort mm-hmm. of mentorship from somebody who's, uh, he, he was the former Habitat for Humanity chairman. He's the, mm-hmm. uh, he, right now he runs the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, so he's, he's had a ton yeah. of, of great things going on in his career. And so I was very lucky to, uh, to get to be with Ray.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it. If you leverage that relationship to then work for him again, I can imagine um, that was super valuable. Yeah. Um, I, something I've, I've always wondered is, cause I know I've looked into like a chief of staff role before, and I'm just curious, like, how would you describe, like, what is that job description exactly? Um, I know I, it varies based on like, you know, a political office, chief of staff type of role, mm-hmm. or like a big tech company or something. But mm-hmm. I guess um, generally, uh, how would you describe that role? What what is that like job description exactly?
2: I think the best way to describe it is like a gatekeeper, right? Mm-hmm. So a chief of staff will literally will will typically be a position that is paired with a senior leader, typically a CEO uh, in 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 that sense. So the CEO's got people coming at them from all over the place, and they mm-hmm. need to kind of have a wrangler to, to keep employees at bay as needed and to make sure the information and gossip get to them as soon mm-hmm. as possible. And then they're also like the trusted source for the, for the CEO. Right. So gotcha. they, they have to vent, they have to, I mean, I would be in that office with Ray, he would just call me in and he would just rip somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and he's like, you can't ever tell anybody this. Right. I mm-hmm. I've got to do this, these, you know, these things or whatever, like, I had to pick him up from the hospital once, you know, he had a surgery procedure, like, mm. th- you kind of have this stuff where you're like, it's a glorified assistant in some cases, but you're handling way more things. And you you sort of have a strategic alignment with like, I'm younger, I know a little bit more from like, on the ground, kind of how things are running. Um, and And that's different in some sense than what I would consider a chief operations officer, mm. which is kind of similar but it's really more corporate it's it's like a much more like overarching corporate structure where they're managing uh you know operations of manufacturing or distribution or marketing like they're doing kind of over everything whereas chief of staff really sits very specifically with their kind of counterpart typically that ceo
0: yeah it makes sense it's like uh like like executive assistant but way more powerful and uh, has some autonomy And, um, yeah, like almost like, uh, like the, the number two, you know, behind a CEO or something. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Definitely like a Lieutenant.
0: Yeah. It's a great way to kind of think of it like that. Very cool. Nice. Well, I appreciate that you going into that. I was just curious. Um, so something else that is super interesting, like, how did you go from this, this chief of staff role into this analyst role at Galpin Motors? (laughs) Um, yeah. Very, um like, it, it doesn't really scream Matt to me. Or, or So I'm just curious, like, how that came to
2: be. I think one thing that's important for people to always remember is that your network is your net worth, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, being able to do the things that I've been able to do or the transitions that I've had have always been the result of a, a beneficial network. So Blake Bachman, who you may have known at Sierra Canyon, Mm -hmm. Um, was one of our friends, like Danny Garrett and Tyler, like we, we would always hang out with Blake
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: his dad, his family owns Galpin Motors. Oh, wow. So I I had been with TechNet for like two years. I was kind of souring on DC. I was kind of bored and we weren't really sure where the company was going to go. We we thought it would, might merge with this other company and those things just take forever. And it was just not something I wanted to do. So I said, actually, I'm going to go to Galpin and sell cars. I'm going to go hang out with my, my best friend and I'm going to go try to sell cars. And the benefit was they said, actually, you'd be really good at selling Aston Martins, Volvos, Lincolns, Jaguars. You could sell all the high-end stuff. I was like, this is going to be great. And I was terrible at it. I was like, so, so bad at it. Um, The benefit is that I learned so much about selling cars that if anybody ever wanted to know or needed help, (laughs) <laughs> understanding how to buy and sell a car. Uh, it was it was such a great way to like understand how the business worked. And I was doing, I was just so bad at it and I wasn't making any money. And I was like, I was trying to figure out how to live. And my mom came and visited me once in the summer. And she said, well, you always thought about going to business school. You should go back to business school. And it made sense because at that point, I'd had three or four years of work experience outside mm. of college. I was in China, I was in DC, I was doing the car thing. And because I knew the family, I said, Hey, I'm really bad at this. Why don't you give me a part-time job as like, I'll call people and just kind of get them in the door if you need, but I want to do business analyst work. I'm, I'm, I'm into statistics classes. When I, when I enrolled at LMU for my MBA program, I was doing all kinds of projects and statistics work. And I always really enjoyed that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I said, let me figure out if there's ways to like, Make your business more efficient or your costs lower, and no car dealership is employing a business analyst so to come yeah to come do this stuff. So we were able to do some really cool work with uh, some of the software they let me have and some of the data they let me have. They just let me pull data, uh, and so I would I would just try to tell stories to their chief operating officer and wow. their controller. Hey, uh, they should stop buying yellow Corvettes at the wholesale market because they are on the lot three times longer than the black Corvettes, mm. you know, wow. and you, and you don't have any margin in them and stuff like that. And so I basically said, look, I'm, I'm going to go to school part-time. I'm going to do this work for you, but I was doing the schooling at night. And so I just needed to like keep an income so I could continue to, you know, keep doing the school stuff. Mm. And so that's, that's really how that came about. And Ray was not like thrilled about it. He's, he's a very um, loyal person. And so uh, the young Dun kind of says, "Okay, I've I've outgrown this shell a little bit. I want to go do something else." And he, what's he gonna say? Like, okay, and yeah. uh, and so I, I made that move and and learned very quickly that it's uh, it's very tough to sell cars. So if you've totally. got somebody who who does a good job, you know, hold on to. Them.
0: I just want to ask about that because so um, you were on the sales floor. Mm -hmm. at a dealership Mm -hmm. and then um did you move to like their corporate office or were you like in um like in the dealership like maybe a big dealership and you're in their office for like one location i'm just curious how that worked for
2: the business analyst thing right yeah so the it's it's funny to laugh at this because like it just shows like if if you because i was part of this i was part of this family and they everybody knew that they they have they have like uh, 600 people that work for them or something like that. And so mm-hmm. p- people are like, oh, Matthew Snyder is basically a Bachman because they know who he is. And they stuck me in the office of the wife who owned the company, who is retired, like long retired. So they put me in the room with the Lotus so my my off I was in this giant office no with way. nothing in it but a computer, <laughs> and and it had these glass on it where I could see out and nobody could see in.
1: Whoa. So I
2: could see people coming and they would just all hang out in my office and it was like outside there's this Lotus sitting, it was a beautiful car. Cool. And and I so I did that I was like, and I was and then I would also call people so people they just like left me alone, and I did that for probably I think I was there for two years in total. So I probably did that for like eight months there and then mm-hmm. they said we're going to move you from this office because this isn't your office. And they like finally realized that it wasn't my office. And then they stuck me in the business office. Then they stuck me with all the people that do all the paperwork. And like, I had to go like clock in at a completely different building, but for like six, seven months, it was sweet. I just like killed it (laughs) in this office and nobody cared. Great.
0: I love that. Yeah. I asked for forgiveness later (laughs) instead of permission. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I love that story. Um, such a grass is always greener on the other side, and then you get there and like, oh shoot, this is harder than I thought. But I like that you 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 worked your network into getting something that was actually interesting to you, and then it yeah. um you know to to get your MBA was is really impressive. And I hear that often too, um, people who like considered getting an MBA right a, right after their undergrad, but they find a lot more value in getting a few years of experience first um Mm -hmm. when you were in your class at in getting an mba did you feel like you had like a bit of an advantage uh or at least like an edge or amongst your peers or i'm curious how common that was amongst folks in your class
2: i think the yeah and and i was just uh it's interesting you mentioned that because i was at unc charlotte on campus Mm -hmm. on wednesday teaching them about blockchain and consulting i did like an hour session with them it was awesome it was a really cool time but they asked the same thing. They said, well, you know, you got an MBA. Is that something you did like right after school or like mm-hmm. whatever? And I said, you know, if you really want a few years just to understand how screwed up the work world is right, and understand kind of how it works so that a lot of the stuff makes more sense. And when you get hired out of the MBA program, they see that you had this work experience. You went back to school and you did the work. Now you're going to do more work. We saw uh, because LMU is a smaller school. We saw a lot more people come in as undergrads, like try to roll right through an MBA program. Sometimes they'll pair it, right? Where you can do undergrad MBA in five years or something, five and a half years or something Mm -hmm. like that. But um, I would say the vast majority, 70% or so of the people that I worked with all had previous work experience. They were all working part-time, whether it was at a bank or it was Mm -hmm. like in LA, like whatever they were doing as their job. Insurance was a big one. Architecture was a big one. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it, it's, it, I think it's very important that it don't get me wrong. It's an amazing experience. Like I, if you enjoy business or like business or want and think that that's a good thing for you, 100%, that's the way to go. I would just wait, uh, until you have the right use case for that. Yeah. And if you do wait a little bit, there's a higher likelihood that a, an employer will pay for it, mm. which is always fantastic.
0: Exactly. Um, it just helps to have the context. So everything you're learning, you know, you can actually apply it to something that you, you remember. Mm-hmm. And it's not just all, not just all theory, you know? Um,
2: yeah. It's it's all about like the relationships too. Like you're, you're putting concepts together in a relational way and it allows you to kind of start to connect dots in a much more powerful and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and growth way, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it must have um, been a, you must have been a great candidate to join a big firm like KPMG then, uh, which I know like is almost as big as it gets, right? Like uh, they're big. They, they're big four. Yeah, like they're one of the they're surviving you know big four, or it used to be like big six or big eight or something for a while.
2: Well, um, yeah, the challenge was I so I, I joined KPMG after uh, graduating. I went through an internship there, but again, this is a networking thing. I. Mm-hmm. I got a scholarship from a guy who was a partner at KPMG in their liquidity risk management division. So Mm -hmm. I kind of talked about the financial crisis, liquidity risk management is making sure all the banks have the money that they need to do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got the scholarship and they sent me to a dinner and uh, the the business advisor, like the the advisor, I guess, he said, what do you know about consulting? And I was like, "Mm, not really a ton. He's like, well, you got the scholarship from this guy He's big at KPMG and mm-hmm. Loyola Marymount is not a target school.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: always like been a bummer, right? Like in some, in some respects, Chaminade wasn't a, a target school or like BU is a target school, but it's so big that like, and, and anybody goes to a college, like undergrads really hard to say, but like MBA programs, it's really important that you go to like a top school to go mm-hmm. to investment banking or to go to Accenture, like whatever these companies are. So we said, you know, it's probably going to be a tough sell. For you to get into KPMG because Loyola is not a target school. Hmm. So I went to this dinner and I like wowed this guy and his wife and then I bothered him for like two months. Nice. And he said can I just please have an internship? And I said, yeah sure. So went through the internship they flew me to Buffalo. We were working with HSBC for a while like probably probably a month or so and then they said, "Okay, we'll hire you full time." Uh, and then after I graduated, I was able to start working uh, at KPMG as a management consultant full time.
0: Wow, that's, that's that's killer, and that's uh, that's the brand. That's a huge brand name to have on your resume. I'm sure sure, sure you're able to leverage that for for your uh, move into slalom too, which I know is I, I, they were bigger than I thought uh, when I looked them up. Seeing like ten thousand employees yeah um, what's the difference I guess how does how did your experience at KPMG compared to an agency like slalom then I'm just curious how that how that worked
2: yeah, that was the that was like one of the big points uh big talking points on this conversation that I spoke with at the uh, at the school earlier this mm. year it's like what's the difference between the two right mm. and so I have these slides that talk about Um, your work-life balance is a lot worse, but your compensation Mm. is a lot like a big four. They'll pay you way better than they'll pay you at slalom, but slalom is going to have a much better work-life balance Mm. than at KPMG. I worked at PayPal at KPMG as a client Mm. for about a year. And during that year, I had over a hundred flights and 180 days, 186 days in a hotel. So I had I had tons of airline miles, tons of hotel points you know, per diem, which is all tax free. So they would give me 70, $75 a day just for food.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I would go get breakfast at the hotel. I would have like lunch at the cafeteria. And then I would go buy like tuna and beans at the Rite Aid down the street because I refused to like spend money on food. So I would make the hotel people like open my can of tuna <laughs> like, and say, like, I, you know, I make this money, but like, I don't want to spend it like eating yeah. here. Uh, and so it's hilarious. And, and, but the, like the companies you work with, like HSBC, I was with union bank and PayPal. Like I was working directly with the treasurer of these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working with really high up people. So the exposure and brand recognition of big four is, is unparalleled. Like it's a great, great, great right. opportunity. It's a grind, right? It's an absolute grind. When I was at Union Bank, they stuck us in the basement and they gave us a bunch of calculators and they said, go through these spreadsheets and make sure these calculators work. And then you had to like document everything. It's like super boring, right? Yeah. But at PayPal, but when I went to Slalom, it was like no travel. And then I worked out at Nike for three and a half years. Sweet. Wow. So it's a 20, 30 minute commute. Uh, There's a picture of me chipping balls with Brooks Kepka you know like michael jordan's there the the women's hockey team comes after they win the world cup um you you're there they have events everywhere all the time you're not an employee they have the white badges which are the contractors and they have the black badges which are the employees and there was a very specific like delineation but Mm -hmm. it was it was really cool really nice people like Um, we did a little bit of staff augmentation work. So it was stuff that they didn't want to pay their own employees to do.
1: Mm. And when
2: I was there for for two years, every day sounds like it sounds like exciting in some sense, but like every day it's like super boring. But we would assemble every email that they sent. So we would assemble the audience for that email. So if you were a certain age, a certain demographic, and you liked a certain sport, you were Mm. getting the the tennis email for that day. Or if you liked golf, you were going to get that email for that day. And so we just had to literally pull from a huge database and say, okay, all these criteria are met. We're excluding these people. Hmm. And these people, it's their birthday, so they're getting a different email. And that was basically our job for two wow. years. Um, so I got to learn a lot Holy of SQL. Yeah, I got to learn a lot of like code, like not coding, yeah. but like SQL, Python, a little bit of that stuff, which I think, too, for anybody listening is an amazing skill set, especially now if you're going to be doing prompt engineering or things like that with AI, uh, being able to pull data, especially like even too at, at uh, Galpin when I was there, you've got to be able to pull data. You've got to be able to like manipulate and pull data. It's a big, big, totally. um, yeah, big, big thing. Um, and then I worked for the Jordan team. So we worked um, in that building doing some marketing work for them for about a year, uh, about a year, year and a half, and that was really cool. Like those, those folks were very nice, very laid back, very cool. Uh, and like I think three different pairs of shoes just wandered into my backpack because That's they're awesome. like, oh yeah, from like drops that they had, or you know, this one guy's like, oh they're half a size too small. Do you want these? I'm like, yeah, I'll take them. Or they're like, oh this one pair's a like I have, I have a, a pair of eleven and a halfs, and I don't. I wear like a ten, but I'm like, I'll oh, bring them on. I'll take the shoes.
0: That's so fun. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it kind of reminds me of, um, like, I used to work at like a, a corporate gig, and it was just like, you know, not like a, I wore t shirts and jeans, but it wasn't like uh, uh, it was still just kind of like formal. Um, but then switching to like a startup world where it's just like, oh, there's a ping pong table and oh, yeah. like we're gonna have this big uh auditorium and we're just gonna like have more of a fun day or we're gonna cater food or whatever. Uh sounds like that kind of like dichotomy a bit from KPMG to uh to yeah. Swaleman.
2: A lot a lot less like rigid and corporate. Um but yeah, and I worked you know, t shirts, sweaters, jeans, Nikes. Yeah. Like you you basically that was their uniform, right? Was wearing the company's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, right. Yeah, and and it was just very cool to see how a very large organization works. Um, I I got to see it at PayPal, too, but Nike is just so vast, all the different things that they do. Um, So it was was a great time.
1: Yeah,
0: I I went to University of Oregon, and uh, there was a guy in my dorm who walked on to the football team. Mm-hmm. And he got in trouble the first day because he was wearing an Under Armour shirt, like all around the locker room. And they're like, no, you can't have literally nothing but Nike, only Nike, not even Jordan was accepted back then, at least uh, like that's the the endorsement deal they got.
2: Um, they they definitely like, escorted people off campus, right? If you had like Adidas on. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very serious. <laughs> that's crazy. I didn't know you went to U of O. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I was there during um, the Chip Kelly football years, which yeah, was a lot yeah. of fun. Um, very cool. Like, uh, Eugene is a, is a fun, fun town, especially on football days. And, uh, yeah, uh, I know, I know how, uh, how big of a powerhouse Nike is to that, that state, you know, as a whole in general. So it's cool that she got to work with them. That's uh very unique. Yeah. Nice. So so I was going to ask about more related to the KPMG experience, but I assume you were following the SVB bank collapse. Mm -hmm and i would love to just get your take on that that situation cuz like, i work in a startup that had um, not only was our funding in svb mm. but the payroll app that we use called rippling mm. they also had all of their money in svb so i like i was at risk of just not being able to be paid you know past wow. uh, a month or so like we had maybe like two months of payroll Jeez. and so like we had this like couple of days of just like sh- is this company going to fail just because of this external factor And it sounds like, I don't know, maybe not directly related, but kind of reminds me of like the value of blockchain currencies Mm -hmm. um, being more stable. And uh, I'm just kind of curious on your take on that whole fiasco and how it just kind of like avalanched in a few days. And, and like, I guess, what's your perspective on that?
2: Yeah. um, Well, it's, it's, it's very, always very interesting to see, especially coming from the financial crisis, right? Like we saw specific derivatives that were being used in a time where credit was very easy to get, people were buying homes they couldn't be, they shouldn't be buying. Mm-hmm. And all this kind of stuff happened and it just created this whole sort of vacuum of, of cash. Mm-hmm. And this was a little bit different because people started taking longer term loans and marking those loans out. And what happens is the interest rates go up and all of a sudden the loans that you took out are not worth as much. So, so you're in this really, you're in a position where I've got an asset I can't unwind. And all of a sudden, their like, their deposits are going nuts, because their people are pulling money out and all this kind of stuff. And the worst case scenario from this perspective was, I think I, I probably get the numbers wrong, but they said it took a took a few days for three to $5 billion of money to flow out of Washington Mutual. In the financial mm-hmm. crisis and WAMU is gone. Like it's not even a bank anymore. Right, right. And they said with not SVB, what was the first one? Was it First Republic? Uh wh- whichever one went down first. Maybe yeah. it was SVB. Yeah, it was SVB because Silvergate was the other one. They said it was something like $60 billion in 24 hours pulled out because everybody's got the ability to, to take deposits on their phone.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So when you have like a run on the bank, people actually had to go to the bank to do the run on the bank. And right. now they could do it all on their phone. So right. it, it just exacerbates the problem way faster. And I had a friend from business school who worked at Coinbase mm. and was laid off at Coinbase before all this happened, because Coinbase went through a round of layoffs. And then he ended up at First Republic and First Republic had its issues. And so if you wow. were in the banking sector, it was very, very kind of scary time. Um, and, yeah. But just kind, you know, kind of seeing what's going on. But I think the the benefit in some respect is that these are not they're not so institutional banks they're not Mm -hmm. too big to fail right they clearly went bust and people lost money and that's not good but that's kind of capitalism at its core in some sense um i'm just glad to see that there wasn't some giant contagion that um that really really warped everything so um lots of other scary stuff coming but who knows
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was um, it was a wild week, and having that fear of many banks failing, many bank runs mm-hmm. after that, and having this domino effect, um, and then combine that with just people being out of work because their companies are not you know around, right. and now suddenly, not like you need to go find a job. Well, so do you know millions of other people, and now there's just huge void, and you're competing against all that. Yeah. Um, that was a crazy situation, um, which fortunately, you know, we. You know we have our money back. You know because we were yeah. a customer and not like yeah. an investor. Um, but yeah, I was just curious on your perspective. Um, so I guess in in general, so then you went from slalom over to Century Tech, which is where you're at now. Um, what was that switch like? Because I know you know it's a much smaller uh, organization. It's like more boutique. Um, mm-hmm. What what was the driver for that for that change?
2: So I had been at Nike in this new role where they were having me build a product that was really kind of interesting it was like an intercompany product so it was ways that marketing applications and platforms were going to work together i was really excited about it and they were kind of picking up a little bit of steam and they had said maybe this is the time that we want to hire you because everybody that's a contractor at nike is always trying to get hired at nike that's like the thing right like i half a dozen or a dozen people from slalom got recruited while I was there. And sure. I, you know, you're always like raising your hand. Like, am I not good enough? Like I want, I want the dunks. Like, why can't I? And um, so my former boss, Ray calls me and this is like right around when COVID kind of kicked off. Yeah. yeah. This was right. around Cause this was in September three years ago. Yeah. So COVID was just like kicking off. And, um, and he said, I don't care what you're doing. You're going to come work at,
0: century. And
2: and I've always been, um, I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always kind of had like a a desire to work with people I really like and have, you know, when you work at a startup or you work in a a smaller space, like the effect you can have to move the business forward Mm -hmm. is much more magnified in those places. Whereas at Nike, I could have created the next best tiny application that marketers love that nobody would have cared or known. It's like, it's such a behemoth that it's not your, yeah. your efforts are just not not maximized, and so I said, okay, uh, certainly not going to take the same pay because it's a startup. But you know those things are always kind of sweat equity, and you pour it in there, and you know see how it goes. So I told I told the people at Nike that I was going to get hired somewhere else, and then they they sent me an offer.
0: No way! <laughs> was wow. like, was like this is
2: the reason. Yeah, this is the reason you sent me an offer, and it actually turned out for the best that I didn't take it because that group of people that I had, many of them got laid off and the group itself got kind of dispersed into other aspects of the organization. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that like Nike is known for, I think a lot of big companies are known for just like reorgs all over the place. They call something, you know, a new group of people, new, like CEOs got a new initiative they want to do, whatever the case is. So I I said, no, thanks. I'm going to take this new thing. And then within a month, they were all like totally... Jumbled, um, wow. and the guy and my boss got got laid off, and he ended up working at Coca Cola. but he's he's working for Coca Cola now. Mm. Kind of an ironic change, right? Like sports and athletes, and then here's this like sugary drink. Yeah, um, right.
0: It's like the opposite. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So, and then we started at Century Tech. Like no operations, no platform, no payroll. Like it was payroll, but it was like coming out of this bank account, right? It was it was very much starting from the ground up for sure uh and i got very very fortunate to have ironically my business partner now with block three strategy group uh who's mm. the ceo a coo of century tech he joined in november of the year that i was there and he came in and kind of brought a lot of organization mm. uh to, to the business which was really really helpful so i've been very very grateful for steven being there
0: cool. So is century tech like uh are you all like a seed stage startup or like are you are you v c backed and um uh, looking to like you know go through like a series a of funding and and grow or are you looking to be like bootstrapped and uh, self sustainable and earn, earn a profit like i'm curious what well, what stage are you at there
2: yeah so it's kind of uh, i would say it's not a typical startup we uh we actually um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, but Century Tech has a foundation as well. So we have Century Tech, which is a for-profit business, and Century Tech Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. Okay. 501, uh, the Century Tech Foundation was um, created and made possible by a grant from Morgan Stanley, who's our banking kind of partner. So we know we, we have relationships with people at Morgan Stanley. They wanted to fund this opportunity to provide connectivity to people during COVID, because they didn't want these people out at like a McDonald's with Wi-Fi, having to like have these kids do their homework, right? Yeah. So they said we need to do something that's like really impactful in this sense. So we, the um, the Century Tech Foundation, now does and deploys uh, a lot of money every year to awardees of sort of innovation. Um, awards that we call mm. them. So we just we just did like three companies that we seeded with two hundred fifty thousand dollars each um, to go build amazing things that do impact. Mm. And the the cool thing is it's it's a minority owned company. So we always uh, are focused on a culturally on like uh, you know different different backgrounds, different people, and that kind of sense. So we at Century Tech then have to say okay, our business model is literally going into the property and. I didn't know this until I started working there, but you can get broadband at wholesale, just like oh, wow. if I was like like gasoline from from a tanker. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can go, I can go. The business model was pretty clear. I can go to any building that's like a hundred units, let's say. Mm-hmm. I can go get a circuit there from any number of providers, and that may cost me twelve hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month, and all of a sudden my cost per unit is like five bucks seven bucks, but people are used to paying $20, $30 for, for broadband, or, you know, you're with Comcast, Verizon, all those you're paying 80, hundred, $120 just for like your service, your TV, all that stuff. So we said, there's definitely a middle ground here. And we want to be able to provide this at a rate that's like less expensive for people who typically can't afford it. Or yeah. in some cases, the property wants to provide it. So now we have this ability to go procure broadband at like really, really low rates, pump it into the property, put everybody... Everybody in the property has their own individual router, their own individual unique ID. So it's not like when you go to a hotel and you are all sharing the same Wi-Fi. Mm. So we design an actual building ISP solution. And then we're in two buildings now. Uh, We're about to get a third. The the sales cycle is maddeningly long.
0: That was my next Um, question.
2: Sales cycle is very long. I'm about to sign a contract with somebody who has had me on the hook for three years. Yeah. But it's, it's 660 oh. units, it's 40 buildings, like it's a huge, huge project. And everything just you have to go at the pace of of all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and now this year, we've also launched our, um, this is called Century Life. And this is the residential services platform. So now, instead of actually doing connectivity at a property, say they already have internet. Well, they could still sign up and get this application. This, this is kind of like an internet portal, basically, where people can go learn, get job opportunities, workforce development, all that kind of stuff. So we pair like a software and a hardware uh, product yeah. uh, with with the company, um, and then we do we do a lot of consulting work for the foundation as well. And now we're in the process of working to um, basically be the administrator of a large impact fund. That we would earn fees from, and so we don't really need to go get funding. Like we don't really need. So I think makes you know sense. there may there may be a Series A, there may be a Series B soon, but we're uh, we're just not quite there yet. We don't really need to be there quite yet.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. So um, the the five hundred C aspect of it helps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, man, mm-hmm. I was going to ask about the long sales cycle because I can only imagine like timing one is like a big thing but then like yeah. how do you even qualify how do you even get the info to qualify from like a if you're going cold outbound or something uh just yeah. must take so long to build that relationship and get all the info you need and then qualify and then like get
2: interest well um, and and nobody knows about it like yeah. why you, you try to have a sales call and they say well why don't i just use comcast <laughs> and that's like a big challenge right it's like saying well do you want to provide this for people? Do you want to do it at a rate that's like affordable to them? Like, and so it's it's a very difficult challenge to sell things to people, not people, I'm gonna say it's difficult to sell things to properties that don't have budgets put yeah. in place to take care of these things. So yeah. it's always like, it's gonna cost you X and they say, okay, great, but we don't have anywhere near that amount of money. So then you wasted your time doing a site visit or they're just not interested or whatever. Totally. So, um, we're, we're looking at kind of other business models as well to see if there's other ways that might be possible to, to have a higher income or more scalable income. Mm. Uh, but the benefit of the software is that it's like 98% margin, right? Yep. Once you create the software, you just have to turn it on to another building and you're off and running. So yep. there's a lot of opportunities uh, in the space. And nobody, there's like no competitors, you know oh, yeah. tell me the other residential services platform that's for affordable housing like so that's, yeah that's the other thing the market's wide open and completely ignored so you yeah. have an opportunity to hoover up a ton of it if you can create a product that people actually want to use
0: yeah your competitor is just status quo nothing basically right. you know right. it's just not doing anything about it and right. uh not not taking on a big project like this <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh, exactly. crazy very cool uh, early congrats on the on the big contract uh, we we'll, won't we'll try to jinx it I'll knock on wood for you but, um, <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome um so you're you're doing this still actively which i hadn't even pieced together that um that both block 3 strategy group is you know you have two jobs going at the same time um would love to know like how you kind of balance that a bit um but tell me about the initiative to create create block 3 like what what did that come uh, you know how did that get born, I'm sure out of the, the web three craze that we're still in. Um, yeah. you know, like there were a lot of like um like early adopters and like you know, I would even say like some like concerns of fraud because like people just mm-hmm. trying to make a quick buck and like mm-hmm. capture this hype, um mm-hmm. especially through like NFTs and stuff. But um curious how you got into this world and um you know what what prompted you to start um block three.
2: So when I was in When I was over at Slalom, I was very, very interested, and somewhat at KPMG, I was very interested in blockchain tech and cryptocurrencies, and I was doing lunch and learns for people at Slalom so they could get a sense of what this technology was, because I I thought, you're a technology consulting firm, shouldn't you be building like go-to-market solutions so that customers ask you, oh, do you know anything about blockchain or how we can do this? And it was a little too early, like 2017, Mm -hmm. 2016, too early for people, wasn't really of interest, like, okay. Uh, And then the NFT stuff started to happen and a buddy of mine heard about it and he was kind of talking about it. And I thought, well, I wanted to do something for Century Tech by creating a landing page for some product that we were thinking about trying out. And the landing page impetus was like, can I just get people to sign up for an email? And so I thought, I don't want to test this at Century Tech first. I'll test it on my own. So I created something called nftconsulting.io, which still exists. (laughs) Nice. Um, And so I thought, well, I'm a consultant. Like, why don't I just like do consulting? And I was able to benefit from the fact that nobody had purchased nftconsulting.io. There was a, yeah, there was, and I'm still number one, like you type it in Google. Like if you type in NFT consulting in Google, I'm the first one that pops up. I do zero marketing. And there was a woman whose initials were NFT, who had a consulting company who had the dot-com version and that's no longer up. So somebody either paid her a boatload of money or right. she said, I have to change this because people keep asking me about NFTs and I have no interest in it. That's So, so funny. I, thought, I thought, Oh, I'll just do this experiment. I'll put up this landing page and I put it up and people just like kept calling me. No way. I've got, I've got this thing. I've got that thing. Can we do this? Can we do that? And I'm like, this is great. And I got hired like as a, on a retainer for like six months from like a Canadian company that was doing an agency, some agency work. It was awesome. Um, wow. It was, it was bizarre. Um, and then as I kept progressing, I talked to Steven, who's the COO of Century Tech. And I told him about some work we were doing about playing poker, lending out NFTs and earning money because of how people played. Hmm. And he's like, that sounds really cool. Why don't you do more of that? And I was like, well, I don't have any money. So he said, well, I've got two friends and we've got an investment group. You should just join that group. We'll put some money in there. We'll we'll do this NFT thing with you. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So we tried doing that and then that worked out pretty well. And they said, well, we want to do this like consulting thing, but we don't want to just be NFTs. Like you should talk about blockchain. You should talk about crypto, like all this stuff. So they ended up buying NFT consulting as a, company. But by doing that, it allowed me to get equity in the investment groups. They didn't really pay cash. They just gave me this kind of equity in their investment Mm -hmm. group. And so we changed it from NFT consulting to block three, which is supposed to be blockchain web three and everything in between. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to be more generic about that. And then we did that for about a year And then i decided you know we wanted to be more on the we always wanted to create a fund we always wanted to be in a position to say let's attract some people let's get them interested in this there's a there's a a high multiple opportunity here for for revenue so i went and got my registered investment advisory license last august which in a world of people saying this is not financial advice i literally we get paid to give financial advice Mm -hmm. in this space um, so that was a thing to um, enhance your credibility and, and show that you have a little bit more of a credential in the space. And then we wrote our book, Warren Buffett in a web three world, which I don't know if you have a copy yet, but I will absolutely send you one if you shoot oh, sure. your address. Um, and it was just a fun project. It was such, I was like, if people can write a coffee table book that has all this fluff in there and it's 200 and some pages, I love Warren Buffett. I think that people in the web three space don't like him because he hates Mm. crypto, but his investment advice is still super applicable. So I went through with Steven and I wrote this book and it's basically 1200 pages of his shareholder letters, all condensed Mm. into this easy to read sort of snackable investment guide. And I think we sold maybe like 200 copies, but it's like really just a thing to wave around and say, Hey, this is cool. We do this. We're in this space. We're trying to blend two things together and be different. And that's really how like block three came about. And that's kind of how we're on the the road to our our new fund right now.
0: Very cool. Yeah. That would absolutely take a free book for sure. Yeah. I got would, you. I got you. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. The, the Warren Buffett's like uh, the thing that I remember about his, his approach is he just like literally doesn't stop reading. Like he just yeah. reading that like, consumes a ton of information and just like, he's just constantly reading, you know, 10 K's and stuff and yeah. about companies and, it's uh it's like for me, information overload, but like obviously it it makes sense to like you you know knowledge is power. so like the more you know, then the more you, you know how to invest it. very cool and and so it sounds like the the book um you know, helps you with like for, formulate your brand and kind of like yeah. become an expert in the space. you can point to yeah.
2: that and um you know folks can check it out and learn more about it yeah it helps us like we go to conferences and stuff and i just came back oh, from yeah. vegas and a conference and it's cool i bring a bunch of copies with me and i'll just bring one with me like during the day and i'll show it to people and stuff like that and then somebody be like wow that's really cool and i was like, here it's yours it's yours like, yeah. what <laughs> it's a cool way to like make an impression and uh it, it's just it's, it's an unreal, it's an unreal feeling to like write your own book and and have it designed and and all that kind of stuff. So if if anybody ever has any interest, like I highly recommend it. It's definitely worth, worth the adventure. Not, not super expensive either. So.
0: Oh, really? Did you work with a firm to like, uh, package it? And, um, yeah, I guess, uh, like you wrote the content, but then they kind of help you put it all together. And and yeah, we,
2: we, we wrote all the content and the first thing we did was had a copywriter and editor look at it a couple of times and then they fixed all the pieces. And then, um, then we had somebody design the cover and then we had somebody design the interior. Mm. Um, and nobody, I was, I was really happy when none of the editors came back and said, well, not only is this fine editorial, like from an editorial standpoint, but like it's garbage content. So, like, I was like, <laughs> at least, at least nobody like hated it from there. So
0: yeah, totally. Um, no, it's got, yeah. it's got good reviews on, on Amazon. I'll uh, put a <laughs> all link ten, to all, it. All 10
2: of them. You got to leave a review. That's your, I that's will your leave job. a review.
0: I, I leave good reviews. So <laughs> yeah, I definitely will. Um, very cool, man. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I have, I have mm-hmm. uh, an explain like I'm um, five uh, question for you. So, okay. I'll give you a little backstory yesterday, uh, a while ago, I was asking my mom to send me some links from Amazon of things that um, I can get for her. And I Mm -hmm. thought it was a simple request. Right. And then she asked Mm -hmm. me like, what is a link? And then so Mm -hmm. I had this like existential crisis moment of like, Oh my God, how do I even like explain what a hyperlink is? Um, But in your words, like how would you explain what web three is to like a five-year-old or someone like, you know, who isn't tech savvy and mm-hmm. maybe not even doesn't even know what web one or two even refers to. Um, how how would you explain that? I'm just curious if, if you might be able to uh, on the spot.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. We were at this conference and somebody I knew came up to somebody I had just met and he was being like, kind of a jerk, but kind of putting somebody on the spot. And he's like, so what does Web3 mean? <laughs> and this, this poor guy, he's probably like 24 or 25, he's working at this company. He's like, oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, and I thought about this a lot because I think there's a lot of technical aspects that go into this technology. And just like we use the internet, like nobody knows what TCP IP is. We just mm-hmm. know that this stuff works, right? And so soon enough, this technology will be in a place where it's going to just work and we won't really know what the underlying infrastructure is. But web three to me, and and the the benefit of this is I've seen this before. Like when we talk about the internet coming together, it's never just one technology that takes us from one place to another. It's what I think of as the convergence of many technologies. AI has been around, virtual reality has been around, blockchain has been around since the 1990s, right? But it's a time and a place where all these technologies start to come together in some lattice work of meaningful way that allows us to use them and build new experiences, generate new businesses, all this kind of stuff. And that whole ecosystem is Web3. It's kind of this like new iteration of where we were previously. And I actually hate, like, I hate the term, but I have to use it because it's kind of where we are at the industry right now. They don't use the best terms. But Web1 is really considered that time when we would like plug in the like the router and you hear the noise and the AOL dial up and you've Mm -hmm. got mail. And we had this ability to do like instant messaging, like basically Mm -hmm. the ability to to send information back and forth was very web one Mm -hmm. web two was the proliferation of social media and being able to say, now we're all connected together before it was just random people, like online doing things. And now it's very much like we've created communities and we've created purpose and we've created brands and we've created movements By being able to have this whole social kind of experiment on, on the internet. Mm -hmm. And now this third iteration is the democratization of a lot of this technology, the ability for anybody without permission to create an application that can be used by millions and millions of people, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's really, really powerful. And so, this this Web three ecosystem is a number of different technologies, inclusive of blockchain, cryptocurrencies, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, and probably a few other things that I'm not thinking of. But it's really all of them coming together, and and working together in a new way that kind of brings this new frontier of permissionless and democratized information um, for mm-hmm. for people to to use.
0: Very very well said. Definitely. Thank you maybe explain like I'm 20, uh, but but yeah, it was it was a good good summary. I like it, very cool, awesome man. Well, that was um, a great discussion. I know we're we're sort of at an hour here. Um, yeah, was gonna ask just like what's what's next for you? Like what uh, I know you've got you know two jobs at the moment. You're on this forefront of this uh, this Web three wave and um you know you're doing really awesome work with you know underserved communities which, which is really cool like what's what's on the docket for like the rest of the year and next year what, what kind of things do you have in mind for you know the rest of your career
2: uh i think that we're really in this like and a couple no go no go stages right now which is exciting mm. but also like you you got to throw your full your full self into it mm. um Century tech's going to be at a point where hopefully we're able to transition we've started hiring more people we have started growing out the business we've we've made it a lot more operationally efficient, which has been really nice. So my hope is that we actually get people to use this software. If this software takes off, it's going to be amazing because Mm. I also want to plug in some AI stuff. I want to bring technology to people that don't have access to it and and let them use it in a way that's like meaningful and not a barrier to entry. Mm. So I think that's really, really a big thing for me is how do we get this into as many people's hands as possible? while also charging for it right so there's going to be some business aspect of this where if you can do it we only need a thousand buildings or Mm 1500 buildings for this to be like a a very big success so and there's Mm -hmm. thousands of these properties out there so also if you can drive a little bit of fomo and the the network effect takes off you're going to be in a really good position there so um hopefully some more um some more work with century tech as we bring in our, we're going to have century capital too, which is our, our vertically integrated um, holding company for cash, basically. So we're mm-hmm. going to work on development of properties, investment of properties and things like that. So trying to oversee and work through a lot of that, especially with Steven as my partner, and then working uh, on the block three side with our new registered investment advisor, um, Uh, Melrose who came aboard as well. And we're going to go through and try to fundraise some money and try to, try to put this into play in Q1 of next year. We've got a little bit of space and time right now to get the marketing in play, get the logistics Mm -hmm. in play and all that kind of stuff. Um, For the career. um, Well, I I mean, I'm a big golfer. So like, as soon as I get to do that every day, I think that'll be really, that's really, that's really the impetus for any any uh career trajectory at this point Seriously? but just continuing to help people and um, have fun with it like I, I don't know that i'll ever work for a large corporation um mm-hmm. i've, I've kind of done it i'm not sure but I, I just love the people i work with and trying to have an impact and so i think um i'm excited to see how things go and um you know hopefully we'll we'll keep killing it
0: that's awesome man yeah you've got a you definitely have an ocean of opportunity out there uh, for this so um i'm sure you're the the mind for it that's super exciting i totally agree too i uh I like small companies and startups myself because of the impact that mm-hmm. you can have. Like, you know, I, if, if you don't do much that day, like the business doesn't move forward uh, very yeah. much, but if I give them my all and I try to get 1% better every day, you see that that actually show up on the the balance sheet, which is pretty awesome.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, well, Matt, dude, it was great to catch up with you. I really appreciate you going into detail. I feel like I could talk to you for, for hours, honestly. This yeah, is, uh, no, I appreciate it. Baby. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I appreciate you joining and it's cool to see where, where you kind of ended up. I, I've been doing this like experiment podcast for a year now and it's been cool to like, you know, I've interviewed some people that I didn't know, but mostly it's been people that I do know. So it was cool to kind of see what's going on with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if there's like one, it's amazing that you reached out. Thank you for thinking of me as sure. somebody who'd want to, who you'd want to talk to. I love what you're doing. I I please keep doing it. I I know from a content creation standpoint, it's never easy, but you're doing the right thing. Just take the reps and keep swinging. And um, I'm I'm very excited for what what's coming out. And uh, let's you know do it again. Just don't be a stranger. It's it's awesome to reconnect with you for sure.
1: Thanks for joining. Work stuff. Can you see my screen? No, I don't think so. Cause it's just for listening. I'm the guy who brings up work stuff. At parties, my name is Andy, and I thank you for joining me. Work Stuff, a podcast, professional stories casually told on Work Stuff.